Welcome to Behind the Blade Podcast, episode 18. This is, we denied you last week a little bit, cut you short. This is one meaty episode, so you should stay tuned to the entire set. We are going to be covering some technical tips in our tech tips segment, how to lay out and profile a knife. We are also going to be covering the Gerber Mark II in history, your Q&As, and even a little bit of news brought to you by Knife News. Stay tuned. headlines from around the world brought to you by knifenews.com knife news for knife people What's happening, gang? Sunday, Behind the Blade podcast. What are we at, Jim? Episode 18. 18. Yeah. We are 18 episodes in, and it's all thanks to you guys. We are having so much fun doing this stuff. We have so much, so much gumption today and so much ambition to make sure that, that things are things are going well. I think that you guys are getting a little taste of that today. Yeah, so- I, I mean, it's cool. It's a, it's a Sunday. I know Jenna's at home doing some yard work. I was tinkering around the garage before we came over, but we have no real plans no rush we kind of been goofing around with some extra stuff on the podcast uh audio so i hope you guys enjoy it but uh let's let's get this party started my friend what are you carrying today (laughs) i'm carrying a couple of cool knives by a couple of cool people is what i'm doing i'm not kissing your butt when i say that i love small knives especially this one by vehement knives yeah <laughs> so it's a small knife um i believe it was made in collaboration between you and brian efros that is right? correct yeah right it's got it's a it's a small maybe three inch blade it's got a little bit of a harpoon that leads to a drop point and it is sharp as hell i really really dig this thing i'm totally gonna have to put pictures up of it moon glow liners in yeah there. moon glow liners and then a little bit of a grabby lanyard with a custom with a custom lanyard bead on there on the end of it it's it's a cool knife, man. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit. Tell me and and our listeners a little and bit you more guys. about this. So this was cool. Um, yeah, we kept it in the family, so I didn't feel bad. And, and we'll get to uh, how this left my hands and became Jim Stewart's property. But Brian one day came over with a little handful of heat treated blanks, and they were kind of nondescript, but they were heat treated and they had holes drilled in the in the handle, almost like a grinding blank, if you can picture that. Sure. And he's like, let's make some knives together and let's design some stuff. And so I said, okay, cool. So we put, you know, a pen to the steel or the pencil to the steel and scribed it out and we did some layout and it was uh, a lot of fun. And we came out with this knife, which later became Brian's LC Hunter. So Lima Charlie Hunter. And he nice. ended up making it into a model. And uh, of course, this, and I got to bust Brian's chops on this because he was like, all right, dude, we're never going to release these. People are going to want them, but we'll never make a model. And then he came out with a model. So, it is, it is. <laughs> But uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Jim showed up, you know, years later. I've had this knife for years and I carried it and really liked it. But he showed up with a, a knife that I could not resist. And I know how much he likes small EDC blades, but he had a Hubertus lever lock switchblade that had the Harley logo <laughs> lasered into yep. the blade. It's a Harley it's a it's a Harley Davidson um limited edition Hubertus. Yeah. And and I can't remember who made it. I don't have it in front of me, but I got it for you last year. Yeah. Yeah, well, you were yeah. at uh, some show. I it don't was, remember what it was. It was the Badger Knife Show in Beloit, Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Yeah, um and uh and I was just walking the floor and a guy guy had a good price on it, so I picked it up. Yeah. And that yeah. it just it, it's been one of my grail knives for a while. I've wanted the uh Hubertus with the bar and shield, the Harley Davidson logo on it for a while, and he showed that to me and he goes, Oh, we'll work something out. So I had to come up with something that I felt matched it in value and individual appeal. So I pulled this off my belt and I gave it to Mr. Stewart himself. So And it is one go. of my prize knives. Cool. And and it's exceedingly comfortable. I mean it doesn't 
it doesn't it doesn't seem like it would be as comfortable as it actually is. It doesn't look you, comfortable, right? Until you put it in your hand, yeah. and you're just like, yeah, I could use this all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no problem here. It's all good. So, in addition to this awesome piece of piece of knife with some nice leather on, on it, actually. Nice, simple leather. I don't know if I the, did that or if Jenna did that, but yeah, it's it's well-worn. It's a little broken. Yeah. Well, I kind of like it then. I don't have to worry about breaking it in myself. Right. 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 Thank you for doing the hard work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the other one that I have is, is also a Brian Efros knife. This is the Brian Efros Off-Broadway, which is a smaller EDC version of his larger Broadway model. Um, it's got uh, crushed carbon fiber. Um slivers that's called crushed carbon fiber that pattern right is that what it is like a random pattern kind of yeah it's it's like instead of layers of carbon fiber sealed together it's just shards of the fiber pressed into a mold yeah and then and then done up together it's pretty cool there's a little mosaic pin right in the middle with a little bit of a lanyard loop and and this is just a light small using knife it's got like a little bit of a compound nightmare grind on it so a little little recurve um three file marks in it for style and brian efforts fantastic logo and this has been hand rubbed and this has been well used this thing's beat up yeah and I, it feels smooth to the touch like it's been handled right? a lot yeah um i i got it from brian um through a through a through a paypal transaction quick I, i'm just like i have to have this knife he's like well paypal me this money i'm like nice. all right and then, and, then, and then i had it came with a kydex sheath um i had a little leather slip made for it um to go right on my belt and it is a fantastic Fantastic little little using knife. If you, if you want, feel like something small and easy to carry, which I'm a huge fan of. I like something that I can just grab and put on my belt and then not feel it throughout the day. So and that one's kind of hot looking. It's a yeah. little technical looking. You know what I mean? So if sure. you're an EDCer yeah. that likes some more contemporary style blades, then I think you should definitely check out Brian's work. That's uh, Brian Efros E F R O S, and it's Brian with an I. Uh, you can find him all over Facebook. I know he's got a website, but I think like most knife makers, his website may be a little bit out of date and social media has taken over. But uh, I would say 90%. Yeah. yeah, but check him out on Facebook. He's a good friend of mine. I actually have several of his knives even still. And Dio's first fixed blade was a Brian Efros. Just there is no greater daughter. honor yeah. than that. That's so, fantastic. Yep. Um, and we really like Brian. You guys should check him out. He's actually doing a couple of folders now. And his oh. folders are supposed to be top-notch. He's all uh, but, I mean, he does yeah. very few fixed blades now. He's moved into the folder game, and I know that he teamed up with Sean Kendrick. Nice. And he teamed up with uh, uh, Jeremy Marsh. Uh, they've done some work, okay. some collabs together. So he's really kind of hanging with the big dogs in the high-end folder market. And it is, I tell you, I've known Brian for years. Um, he's a close personal friend. And to see the success that he's gotten from getting into, he's always wanted to do folders, getting involved mm-hmm. in it. I couldn't be happier for him. He just moved back to Colorado, which bums me out. He left Michigan to go back to Colorado, which is where we met. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, very, very happy with his success. And I hope you guys check him out. I know that he does lottos and stuff. So there are still knives available. Whether or not his books are open, I'm not sure. But I do know that you can still get your hands on a knife if you choose to do so through his groups and stuff. Absolutely. That's something that I got to do, too. I got to get in on one of those lottos. I want one of his fire folder models. Yeah. I mean, um, I've... I've described his his uh, his folder as if you're a fixed blade guy, you'll really like this folder. Yes, it's, it's a I, fixed blade lover's folding knife. And, I think so. And and I really think that he's going to go places with it. So you guys really need to go out and check him out. Yeah, it's I, cool. I mean, he's already skyrocketing. So get it while the getting's good before you know they become twelve, fifteen hundred dollar folders. Although he did raffle off that or auction off that Jeremy Marsh collab, and I think mm-hmm. pulled in like five G's or something like that. That's it, awesome. Yeah, so good I, freaking I job. He's That's really awesome. killing it. That's great. All right, so Matt, good sir, what are you carrying? I I changed it up a little bit. I wanted to feel fancy today, so I carried (laughs) 
one of my all-time favorite dress knives, and that is the Spyderco Shemp. And it is the Shemp Persian. I'm sorry, Spyderco mm-hmm. Shemp Persian. This is an older one mm-hmm. out of VG10. It's got stainless steel bolsters that are uh, kind of, I don't know, if laser cut or machined. I don't know. How, what do you call that? Where it's like that. So oh, like it's swirly. I, I, almost keyhole. Yeah, almost, almost keyhole, keyhole against some micarta scales. And yep. it, it's just it's just a good fit. Yeah, you know, for for the design, and it's just a classy knife. It's really hot looking. Uh, it's got a good authoritative, 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 Author- authoritative. It's got a good strong, healthy <laughs> click. Yeah, <laughs> a, a porky pig moment. Yeah, yeah it, it's a it's a spine lock. Um, this was back when Spyderco did the kind of slate gray boxes before the black and red box. I saw right. the original box of this, but this was a grail for me. And when I finally got it, I was very happy with it. And I've been very happy with it ever since. And of course I have my trusty old demo knife. Um, on the topic of the demo knife. Yeah. So I use this thing every day. This is, I've like I said, I even abandoned my Leatherman in exchange for this because it's so easy to carry and so convenient and so versatile. Now, there is a lot online of people who have these Camillus uh, stainless steel slip joints. They're like a camp knife. It's got a can opener, a screwdriver, and all in a spear point blade. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, we call these the back the, springs, the, main the, springs? The, the, main, the, the spring. The just, spring. Just the spring. Yeah. Okay. Well, the springs on these have a tendency to break. Really? And a lot of people are like, yeah, I carried my old 75 until it broke, or I had this one until the spring broke, or don't open all the tools until, or, or it'll break. Right. And I guess there was a problem with that, and it seems to be a pretty big common problem. Oh. Now, I've opened all the tools on these on my personal one several times to clean out the inside, because it just makes it a big channel. Yeah. And it's very easy to clean out. Q-tip, um, quick. I, I didn't know that that was bad to do, because you may break it. That being said, I've had this knife for 18 years. Let me see this. And I've never had issue one, but I'm contemplating retiring it before it breaks, if that's going to happen. I don't see any signs of cracks or breaking on it. Or I, fatigue. I imagine, or, or fatigue. I imagine you you gave this a once-over, too, after you, after you heard that. Yeah. Um, I don't see anything wrong with this. Um, if that's a common problem, though, it's prob- it might be wise. Or use it till it breaks and get another one. Uh, <laughs> I know. Well, yeah. what I what, here's the thing. And you guys... I guarantee you 90% of our audience is going to relate to this. Mm-hmm. I really want an Alox. What is it? Well, there's a pioneer and a farmer, a Swiss army knife, Alox, the aluminum, you know, checkered. It looks a lot like the demo knife. One of them has a saw. I don't want that one. The other one just has the basic tools in it. All spear point blade, bottle opener and can opener and screwdriver. Uh, that's the that's pioneer the Nespresso. No, it, it's got everything you just said. No, there's a. It's either the Pioneer or the Farmer. Oh, there's a Pioneer Alox. Oh, there, it's a Pioneer Alox. Okay. 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 Yeah, the Nespresso is the same thing, but smaller. Okay, I don't okay. want the smaller one. No, 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 there's one that's the like one. this yeah. exact size. Right. Right. How big is that? Three and a half inches. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. But hold on. I'm turning turning around my Chromebook. Oh crap! Sorry guys. Oh yeah. See, that's even in the the green. Yeah. So. But here's the thing is I want that knife so bad, but I can't justify it because I have this one and I carry it, right? Right. And and I'm like, well, why would I need two of the exact same knife? Well, if there was any concern that this may blow out and then lose all its value or its usefulness for the future, then maybe I should just retire it mm-hmm. and then get that Alox Pioneer. It's $52 from SwissArmy.com. I think on Amazon, like 28 Right. On Amazon, I, which means on Amazon, they have to be cheaper. Right. right. And I also think I could probably contact one of our dealer distributors and get one from them for reasonably cheap, too. So I don't know. Um, yeah. So I, I 
I'm pretty sure both Knife Ship Free and DLT carry Swiss Army knives, and so I'd be able to get hand-to-hand local right. easy pickup. So, yeah, this one, the, the, the basic one that's in silver is thirty four ninety three on Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, I, I, and want, either a, I want either so, a black one or a green one. I The silver yeah. one, it looks painted silver to me. Yeah. And yeah, it doesn't it's, it's, have yeah. the same Zaz. If it's going to be colored, I'd like it to be colored. And then I think ultimately I'll get a, like a purple one for Jenna and a blue one for my daughter. Right. You know what I mean? No, so, well, I mean, at that price, it'd be easy to do. Yeah, totally. So I think – so I, my point, though, is that you guys understand this. You want to get a knife, but you can't justify it. And then when there's like a, a peeling back of the label and you see that golden ticket inside and you're mm. like, there it is, the justification <laughs> to get a new knife. So yes. I, I found it. Yeah. I've been waiting for yeah. this day. So, so I think that's what we're going to do. Very cool. Um so yeah, so I think that's that's what uh, I'm that's what I'm carrying today in a long-winded <laughs> version. Sunday, Sunday speed, no problem. So going back to what Jim was carrying, we talked about that Hubertus Leverlock Auto, and on the topic of switchblades specifically, this is pretty cool. Uh, obviously, they're legalized here in Michigan. Now we have to wait until October first. I think it, it's either the first or the tenth. I got to look it up. But oh, anyway, anyway, it's the first yeah, week of first, October. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. So the first half of October, right. anyways, we'll be able to legally carry switchblades here. So what I did in commemoration, in celebration, <laughs> is I commissioned Huck Huckleberry Goodnesson of Ghost Town Custom Knives to do a full custom Buck One Ten Auto for me. Nice and nice. I'm so <laughs> pumped about this. We were sitting in his shop, having a couple beers, you know, talking guns and knives. And uh, he had a, an unfinished, like an unstarted, like a brand new in the box Buck 110 Auto. Mm-hmm. And I picked it up. And I love the 110s. Yeah. I mean, they're heavy, but they're just, they're so iconic. And they're so they're clean. workhorses. Man. They are. I mean, they really are. The so, autos? Yeah. Home run. Are they really? Home run. I haven't seen one yet. Oh, That's my awesome. God. I, the, the action is so smooth. It's so crisp. It's so classic. And I was like, you know what? I've wanted a knife from him for some time. He's a very talented, uh, I don't want to call maybe like an embellisher or custom. He makes knives too, but his his stock and trade is is really reworking these 110s yeah. with all this custom work to him. His dad used to do that. And I know we've talked about him on here before, but uh, I really... I finally figured out the motif theme and the specific work that I know he can nail. I, I know exactly what I wanted on the knife. So we went over it. We came up with the ideas. We put pen to paper, um, and I commissioned him to do it. And nice. So I hopefully mm-hmm. we'll get that around the time that switchblades become legal, and we'll be able to do a tabletop <laughs> review, and that'll be so fun because it's such a sweet knife. I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be great. Yeah. I mean, all I've got is I've got I've got a Mykov, and I've got my 13 inch. Italian stiletto that I picked up at Blade Show. I think I have like 15 <laughs> autos. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I need to borrow one. It's really cool. Till I get my own. Um, <laughs> it's speaking of which on uh, Knife News. Yes, on Knife News. Um, we um the 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 Buck 110 Auto that we were just talking about is considered one of the top 25 best-selling blades of 2017. F- uh, f- there are few, if any. Knives that have survived unchanged for as long as the venerable Buck 110 Folding Hunter, says Knife News. Ever since its introduction in 1964, the 110 has been an evergreen design for Buck Knives. Its striking good looks, capable size, keen blade grind, sturdy lockup, and expertly treated steel have kept the 53-year-old Buck 110... 53! Yeah, selling briskly year after year. 53 years old for that pattern, man, and they do it every single day. They yeah. just crank it out. I mean, and and they do they do special editions too. I mean, I think uh, DLT Trading has a special edition where the blade is made out of like S30V. 
You, are, you used you know, to be able to go on Buck's website mm-hmm. and custom build one yourself Ooh. with your own blade steel, your own handle, your own bolster material. You could select from a range. There were like four right. or five options. Right, they, they just give you a bunch of options. Yeah. I think they stopped doing that like a year ago, maybe two years ago. But like you said, maybe DLT has some custom ones because I know you can get them S30V blades. You get them micarta instead of diamond wood, you know. That might be uh, cool. I might, I might have to put a little bit of money down for that because I do want the Buck 110, but I don't want the materials that are in the buck 110 you know i I got one for jenna got me one for our anniversary one year yeah and it was a 50th anniversary editions at 420 hc with the paul boz heat treat and all that sure but it's a great knife the only thing that i would say (laughs) is i think i'm going to tap a pocket clip onto it that's a good idea because it is heavy either that or make a a slip it does have the belt sheath but i have enough stuff on my belt i don't need to look completely like batman you know (laughs) although that is fun yeah (laughs) (laughs) um now, with the new Buck 110 Audio, you can get one straight from Buck without having to void the factory warranty by prying the knife apart or paying someone to do it for you. So apparently this is so this is a response to that, that people were customizing regular Buck 110s to be autos. They were. There's about now, three people out there that did them, and, mm-hmm. and they were all, even, I mean, some of them were really good, but most of them were about 70% reliability, and it diminished okay. the overall life of the knife based on the way that they did it. So gotcha. there were always kind of problems with them, and usually it had to do with the button mechanism itself. Gotcha. So uh, this this is this is a this is a from buck an improved version to make it auto that, yes. that has a longevity to it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and factory warranty. Right. You know. That's cool. That's cool. What's the what's the price on these guys? I think they're like a buck and a quarter uh street price. Street price. Plus okay. or minus, yeah. The well, the regular folding hunters in just plain diamond wood looks like forty-four bucks. Yep. And what would it say the auto was? New Buck One Ten Auto. I'm just quick linking here. Hundred and forty bucks. Hundred forty yeah, bucks. Okay. Forty yeah. bucks. So, man, what else is on this? Uh, fifty-eight sixty four twenty HC, uh, bl- uh, blade metal fifty-eight sixty Rockwell, and Macassar ebony diamond wood and brass bolsters. So that's hundred and forty bucks for that. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Very stylized button on it I thought was pretty cool, too. So Yeah. It, oh, it is stylized. Look at that. It's not just like a round thing. It's like a shield. It's like a shield, yeah, like an asymmetrical cool. shield, and it has some texturing inside there, like stippling. And oh. you see that little center kind of tit in the middle yeah. there? There's stippling around that. And oh, cool. I mean, it's... I mean... It, you had one job, Buck. You had to develop a button to go on your auto, and they're like, let's just go all in. And they invested a lot of time in the design. I think the button stands. I know it sounds ridiculous, but those of you guys who have them or get a chance to look at them, I think you'll understand when you see it. You'll be like, that is a hot-looking button. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Okay. All right. So um, I think that uh, that closes out the news segment, doesn't it, sir? There it is. All we'll, right. We'll be back in a flash with some history. This episode of Behind the Blade Podcast is brought to you by Cry Knives. One of the masters of the grind and one of the few people that can take an existing knife to a grinder and actually add value to it. To find out more, Jim, where can people find it? I'm glad you asked that, Matt. To find out more information about Tom Crine, you can go to CrineKnives.net. K-R-E-I-N Knives.net. Um, you can also check them out on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Krein Knives, spelled the same as before. And he's also on Instagram as Tom Krein, K-R-E-I-N again, all one word for that one. So make sure you check him out. And uh, I am pretty sure that his books are closed as far as customs go. But if you check out his Facebook group, there are opportunities at least weekly to purchase one of his fine knives or win him in a lotto. So be sure to check him out. 
we are back with another history segment for you guys. I'm really excited about this one. Matt's got some awesome, awesome information. I know this is one of his favorite knives, and it's one of, it's one of, it's an iconic knife. The Gerber Mark II. By all means, Matt, good sir, take it away, man. You better believe it, the Gerber Mark II. And this is one of my all-time favorite knives. I've had a couple of them. Um, I actually used to restore Gerber Mark IIs. Ooh, that's got some good history for you. So yeah, so I'd get some uh, beaters, like some yeah. shag nasty, just messed up, and, and I would go through, excuse me, everything from the armor hide to the blade finish, and even the sheaths. We'd recraft mm -hmm. the sheaths using, uh, like, the, like the back panel, yeah, is is the one that has the Gerber Portland Oregon stamp on it and yeah. the M1910 metal hook and all that. Yeah. Well, we'd either replace the hooks. I would steal them off of cheap canteens and stuff like that. <laughs> like I'd buy a cheap canteen and then cut them off of there. But uh, you know, we would recraft the whole sheath to its original glory as long as we can maintain that back panel so it looked authentic. I would mm -hmm. do full custom sheaths too, which but it just it wasn't the same. It wasn't like restoring. Right. It was like recreating. Right. That's um, cool. But yeah, so I, I love that knife so much that I would get that involved with them and. Uh, this is, I'm going to jump around a little bit because I took information both from Wikipedia and from a website. I invite you guys, I sincerely invite you to check this out. If you're serious about um, old military collectible knives or anything that has a military connotation to it in the knife world, it's called militarycarryknives.com. And it is a great resource. So I took some information from there as well as Wikipedia. Let's dive in. The Woo! The Gerber Mark II is a fighting knife manufactured by Gerber Legendary Blades from 1967 to 2000 with an additional limited run of 1500 in 2002. And full reproduction, I'm sorry, and full production resuming as of July 2008. A little so bit of a hiatus, but now they're back strong. They okay. did, yeah. They took a major break <laughs> and then they came back with the Mark II, like they said, in 2008. And it was um, slightly different. The blade seemed a little bit more robust. It almost, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but everybody, I think, listening will understand it. It almost had, the original ones had a very fine, almost custom geometry to them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Or yeah. similar to like a Randall, like everything was is a little bit fine. Yeah. And the new ones remind me of a United. Okay. Yeah. It, it cookie, might, cookie cutter versus... Yeah, they're versus, a little stamped out, a little bit obtuse in the edge geometry, yeah. but they're thick and they're more durable, which is, I think, was the goal, and that's what they got. Okay. Gotcha. So... Um, the interesting thing about this knife specifically, and it's one thing that never really gets discussed, is that it was designed by retired U.S. Army Captain Bud Holtzman, who based the pattern on a Roman mains gladius. So maybe we'll have to come back to that gladius at some point and touch on that. The gladius has one hell of a history. It it's, does. It's cool. It, oh, it yeah. really does. Uh -huh. And so this is really the great, great, great grandchild of the Gladius uh, being scaled down to combative backup weapon instead of primary weapon. You know, <laughs> the Gladius got replaced with the AR-15 and now the M4. Right. Or the M16, I should mm -hmm. say, and the M4. But uh, so, yeah, so this and you can see that heritage you can see that influence in what the what gerber calls the wasp wasted design mm -hmm. and on a dagger wasp wasted means that if you were to picture it cut in half at the center peak of the dagger it would look like a recurve blade now sure. now it's a mirror image of two recurve right, blades right at top and, and bottom yep yeah, and it yeah. results in a broader tip and then it, it scales back now one benefit of that and this is a little graphic it's a fighting knife guys so forgive me if i go a little bit gross here but one of the benefits of that is you're cutting your plane of resistance is over very quickly. As soon as you're about an inch and a half into the tip, mm -hmm. it gets skinnier. 
Right. So you're not constantly cleaving and spreading out a wider wound channel. What you're getting is deeper penetration with less resistance. Right. And so once you're past the widest part of the blade, it goes in much further into the body cavity. So, gotcha. Um, let's get down to the specs. It's got a 6.5-inch double-edged spear point wasp wasted, which you guys now know mm -hmm. what that means, uh, <laughs> blade, and uses a distinctive handle similar to that of a Fairbairn Sykes fighting knife developed during World War II. The, the Coke bottle style. It does. Coke yep. bottle mm -hmm. commando style handle. I think they made some improvements to this on the Mark II. I think it's a much better version than the original Fairbairn Sykes. Mm -hmm. um, may lightning strike me dead for saying that. But it does have <laughs> some flats on the blade side, on the, you know, the sides of the blade. Yep. So you have some indexing ability. And it's mm -hmm. a little bit more hand filling. Um, it yeah, is, it looks a little bit wider than the Fairbairn Sykes. Oh, significantly, yeah. yeah. But, but still, but still very comfortable and ergonomic. Hell yeah! So, and, and it's a uh, cast aluminum, and the blade oh. epoxies in there only about an inch and three quarter. Really? That's yeah. It? There's really not much to it. Huh. And I have a plan. Uh, eventually, I'll get another Mark II. But I also have someday when I get free time, right? <laughs> uh, there's a list of about 10 knives that I would like to recreate just for myself, not as like a marketable thing, but my grail knives that I want to make myself. And I think I can make a Gerber Mark II, and I even have a plan to run a rat tail tang, you know, a hidden tang all the way through. And I developed what I think would work as a nut to maintain the lanyard hole. And I have it all engineered <laughs> in my mind, so I'm pretty excited about gotcha. that. Gotcha. That'll be Very a fun cool. one. Um, let's see. The Mark II was commonly carried by U.S. troops in the Vietnam War and was second only to the K-Bar knife in fame. Obviously, we know, you guys know, because of history lessons, that that is the Navy Mark II. Right. The K-Bar knife. Yep. Uh, and this is the Gerber Mark II. The Mark II was, uh, was the suggested blade in Paladin Press's controversial how-to book, Hitman, a technical manual for independent contractors. Why would that, why would that book be controversial? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> possibly go wrong there. And I encourage you guys to look that up because it's kind of a funny story how that book came to be. And it was in Paladin Press's heyday of burn this book because now it's illegal, the black book era, you know? So <laughs> right. pretty crazy. Um, during the Vietnam War, getting a little bit of the history of the knife itself, during the Vietnam War, the first production run of this knife had a five-degree offset between the blade and the grip. Now, hang on. This is where I'm about to tell you why it's like that. And I know you guys have, well, not all of you, but I'm sure a few of you are like, well, that's so it can go between the ribs and reach the heart. Or that's so, you know, dirt, dirt, dirt. You know, there's a million little myths because that's how you can reach the lungs. It's the only way with that five degree can. Right. No, this is the God's honest truth. This is why that blade was bent five degrees. In order to ride in the sheath more comfortably and give the user a grip similar to that of a fencing foil. So the five degree cant was actually designed in jungle foliage uh -huh. so that when you wore it next to your body, the handle would curve and contour to your body, whether it be calf, hip, right. or upside down carry on your web gear. So, so as you're moving through the jungle and the brush, does, nothing gets in between the handle and the and, and your and your vest. Yes, less protrusion, gotcha. less snag point. Right less snag point that's which which is actually really smart <laughs> pretty cool right yeah, it's pretty cool yeah. the design feature led to a significant number of knives being returned by the users for having a bent blade so gerber <laughs> discontinued that element on the subsequent production runs it's like well fine they're not, they're not gonna want it you're right yeah, exactly <laughs> let like, them snag it on one, brushes this one's bent uh in the 1970s the military's base post exchange of the px uh discontinued selling these knives reasoning that they were not in good taste or too brutal oh. in quotations oh. too brutal too brutal Almar, <laughs> the legendary famed Almar, we need to do a history segment on him too. Uh, when here, working here. for Gerber as a knife designer, added the sawtooth serrations towards the hilt. So the original 1960s uh, into the 70s, the Gerber Mark IIs were wasp wasted, but no serrations. They were a smooth Ooh, blade. I kind of want one of those. Oh, it's a very sexy blade. That's You're going to cool. pay out the nose oh, sure. for them. They get spendy. 
Um, and so they said it was too nasty of a knife, if you've ever heard of that. And this is being sold on the PX. I mean, we're not talking about KB Toys. We're talking about on the PX. And so, uh, you know, to fighting men and women. So Almar came up with this idea of adding serrations on both sides of the wasp waist, uh, you know, towards the hilt, marketing the knife as, get a load of this. This is in mm-hmm. true 70s, 80s form, a survival aid, making it more appealing to the PX system, which resumes selling the Mark II as a survival knife rather than a fighting knife. <laughs> so, oh, oh, this So this, you think oh. PC is new? We, you know, we put serrations on the side of a dagger and called it a survival knife. You know I mean? <laughs> Come on. Right, right, to appease, to appease, the, to appease the crowds. Now, where this really got out to the public, beyond just the men with green faces in Vietnam, but where this really reached out to the public, probably for the first time in mass, would be the Mark II gained additional fame when it was used by Mel Gibson in the 1981 film The Road Warrior. So Mad Ooh. Max carried one on his leg. And it is awesome. seen in just about every scene of the movie. Right. He's you carrying this, you know, uh, Gerber Mark II. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, this was another big one from when we were kids. The black-coated blade model of the Mark II was used during the mess hall knife play scene in the science fiction <laughs> film with Aliens. With Lance Hendrickson? As Bishop? With, oh, as Bishop. Yeah. So, yeah, he goes, 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 don't move your hand. Yes. And he goes, That was a Mark II. Right. That was a Gerber Mark II. That's cool. <laughs> uh, it says here, uh, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, features the Winter Soldier using a Mark II in a fight with Captain America. I haven't seen that movie yet, and it's 2014, so I don't think it's it's been old enough to become iconic. No. But one thing I will say that was mm-hmm. iconic was... Uh, it's got some other ones here. It was uh, this is one of my favorites right here. So it's the wonderful application of fighting work with Gerber Mark II was demonstrated in the movie Under Siege. So do you remember Steven Seagal and Tommy <laughs> yes. Lee Jones duking it out on the bridge of the ship? <laughs> yeah, that is a Gerber Mark II. That's, that's and awesome. He keeps tapping uh, against his jacket and everything. I mean, it was just a killer scene. And so that there you go. So that uh, that's how that got to be into fame. Now going back. To Captain Clarence A. Bud Holtzman, he served with the he served with the famed 101st Airborne Division mm-hmm. in the European theater. The division was renowned for action during the Normandy landings and in the Battle of the Bulge. For his gallantry under enemy fire, Captain Holtzman was awarded the Bronze Star, our nation's fourth highest individual military de- decoration. Now, Bud is the guy who developed and designed the Gerber Mark II. Nice. And uh, mm-hmm. let's see. So the initial design. This is again taken from MilitaryCarryKnives.com. Bud Holtzman met with Joseph R. Gerber. Uh, oh, so yeah, Joe Joe Gerber, uh, president of Gerber Legendary Blades, on May 23, 1966, and submitted his design. And on that website are pictures of his original design, which are pretty cool, and they explicitly call out that five degree cant. Uh, left pictures of copy. Let's see. Uh, unlike the Fairbairn Sykes blade, which had a tapered tapered to a point, it instead had a double a wide double edged blade. The blade had a wasp waist shape and a square ridge ran down the center both sides for added strength. Now that design feature never made it to the Gerber version of the Mark II. So okay. he had basically taken, uh, it, it's like a, a, a flat mm-hmm. all the way down. It didn't come to a peak. Gotcha. And okay. it looks like a fuller should have gone there to be quite honest with you on the original design. But he wanted to strengthen it and that's how he came up with it. And then they actually totally got rid of that idea and just went with a standard <laughs> dagger gun. Um, <laughs> The handle was to be checkered or ringed with concentric circles, which, again, Gerber did not do. They just mm-hmm. uh, they did the armor hide texture first. Or, I'm sorry, they did the uh, cat's tongue thermal spray treatment right. to it first. Right, 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 and right. then it moved into armor hide, which was a coating. Um, but see, but the unique feature was the canted blade with a five-degree offset edge. The offset would allow the blade to be carried on boot or in the boot on the hip 
or in the small of back without snagging and aiding concealment. Also, the cant of the blade offset natural wrist tendency to raise the blade. They can't help to keep the blade level for better penetration in a lunging move. So the intermediate design, design was submitted industrial design firm, which made a number of changes. The square spine was eliminated and a one-piece handle was suggested. An undated intermediate design without any nomenclature is shown here. So there's another picture of that. Really a hot looking knife. In 1966, a prototype was made and sent to Fort Lewis for evaluation. The assessment resulted in several additional suggestions and the changes were incorporated into the design. Bud was very involved with the knife from the original design he brought to Gerber to the actual finished product. He worked for Gerber during design and for about a year after the knife actually hit the market. Mm. His son, Mark, who was about 10 years old at the time, can remember him bringing home materials they said they were testing on uh, for deciding to use in prototypes. Uh, sometimes it was a leather sample for the scabbard or a piece of metal sprayed with the cat's tongue material that eventually was used on the hilt. So that's pretty cool. Now, I'm going to skip you guys a lot of the uh, marketing and stuff like that. Just go to the website and read that. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> a couple things. Number one, Gerber has a great historical department. I think they actually just have like an old man in the back that they ask, and he knows everything. Because <laughs> every time I've called them and asked for reference stuff, they are happy to help with that. So they're mm -hmm. like, oh, so the Gerbers were serialized, which made them very collectible. Mm -hmm. And you're able to date them and tell their, their material based on their serial number designations. Okay. So anyone that is stamped with the suffix of S, as in Sierra, S, mm -hmm. that means it's a stainless blade. And previous to that, and I think that runs up into the late 70s, and then it, it changes over in about the early 80s when they kind of lost the wasp waist. Mm -hmm. They went to a straighter dagger profile yeah. and also moved to stainless. At that same time, they went from the leather to the nylon, ballistic nylon sheet. Interesting. So Interesting. there's, I mean, there's a long history behind there and you can really get lost in the collectability and the eras but it's definitely you know just little stuff that's worth knowing they came with fine serrations coarse serrations um just an all-around very cool knife but this i do want to read and this is just homage to the man who developed this iconic knife and made it famous and really present in almost every serious collection so i'm going to read this word for word according to his son mark Bud always wore different mementos of his military service on his lapel, either his 101st paratrooper regiment pin or his miniature bronze star campaign ribbon. 99% of the world was oblivious to what they were, but he would get a kick out of another soldier, young or old, recognizing it. He loved <laughs> to engage others and would talk with anyone. In Vietnam, among private purchase knives, the Gerber Mark II was second in popularity only to the Randall. It was carried by Navy SEALs, LERP teams, Pathfinders, and other Special Forces personnel. I'm sure that many of these military uh, Special Force individuals felt more secure having this quality fighting knife on their person. Bud's Mark II knife design is a classic. It is still being produced 49 years after it was introduced. The design has been copied by at least six other companies, yet Bud never received the recognition he deserved. This is a shame. Mr. Holtzman passed away peacefully, surrounded by his family members, at the age of 87 on April 27, 2010, in Portland, Oregon. He was buried with full military honors at Williamette National Cemetery in Oregon. And nice. so I think we he deserves that because I don't think he got the credit that was due for designing something that is so big and so important to the knife community today. It's so, so recognizable. So everybody go check yeah. out that article, and you'll see some cats wearing them in their battle rattle back in Vietnam. There's some cool pictures, <laughs> and there's a lot of resources online. You'll see some ads and stuff like that. So check out MilitaryCarryKnives.com for that. Jim, thank you for letting me ramble on for my history segment. Not a problem, sir. <laughs> Woo, that was a lot. That was a good history <laughs> segment. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys in a little bit with the next segment.
What's happening, gang? So today I come walking over to Jim's house to record episode 18 of the podcast and sitting on his kitchen counter. Well, Jim wasn't sitting on his kitchen counter, but <laughs> guess what was his KME sharpening system? He was mm-hmm. putting the edge on his Victorinox multi-tool that he the, talked the about Victor- last week. Victorinox Swiss tool. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice little thing, but the edge got a little chewed up because it's basically my package opener. So I just, I throw it around, I slam it around. But you know what? That edge came right back up on that KME system. It's gonna be absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah, Matt walked in and I was I was I was working away at it and I had the whole thing chalked up in there perfectly um, and I was using the I was using the tool to reprofile the edge. You had a nice even burr when I when I got to it. You know, you had a nice crisp burr on one side that Easy you were working. Do. Yeah, it was great. So uh, yeah, go check them out at kmesharp.com. They've got a myriad of different devices on there too, not just their base sharpening system. I know that Jim and I are getting ready to go on a little bit of a shopping spree because I really want that axe sharpening system and the scissor sharpening system. The scissor sharpening system looks absolutely sweet. I'm also looking at the serration system that yes, has as well. The diamond rod yep, for there, serration. There are some serrated knives that I have to that I have to sharpen up for a couple of friends of mine that I have to do, and that would be perfect for this. So go check them out, KMESharp.com. And we are back. So today in Tech Tips, I think we robbed you guys last week. Maybe we, we did. Uh, did. We we, we, we did. We did. We were, we were under a time crunch last week. That's right. And, uh, and or earlier this week, I guess. Technically. It was earlier this oh, week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so we're, we're getting on top of this thing. This is great. So yeah. So this week in Tech Tips, Jim and I are going to go over our technique from taking a concept drawing of a knife all the way through a finished blank, which is pre-bevel, uh, pre-surface treatment, you know, pre, you know, like surface grinding or whatever you're going to do to it. But we want to make it easier for you guys and give you, uh, you guys in the trenches, kind of the professional insight as to how we do on a custom. This isn't going to be on a production knife, but on a custom, how you can take a drawing and translate it to basically a two-dimensional piece of steel ready to be turned into a knife so the right. this this is the first step in knife making mm-hmm. as a custom so I, I i yeah absolutely this is uh this is this and this is a bigger step than you would think it is because there's a few different techniques on exactly how to do it and i think my technique is similar to matt's but it's got some small differences which is great um, I mean, yeah I no, some, no, you know, yeah, also, i, I discovered strokes. i discovered this way you discovered your way and we both we both end up with basically the same result that's right so so um this works out great you want to go first should i go first um I'll, I'll kick it off. I'm pretty okay. fresh on that. Uh, right. For whatever reason, it's kicking around my head, and my ADD will cause me to drop it if it goes too long. <laughs> and I'll be like, I don't know. Whatever okay. Jim said, that's it. <laughs> but okay, chime go. in. Chime in yeah, anywhere, you and we it. can do an A and a B. You got it. So, um, so you have your drawing. You you took a napkin, and you drew a knife, or you have an idea in your head, and you're happy with it, and you're like, hey, the proportions are right. And then you translate that. I recommend wholeheartedly translating that to a dimensional drawing. If you're serious about getting this dialed in, then make a blueprint and you want to make, you can use a French curve and a ruler and a pencil. It doesn't take AutoCAD. I don't even know how to use AutoCAD. So I I do everything with pencil and line drawing. Um, That's what I do with straight off customs. Um, And uh, going into, going into CAD is something that I need to, you know, truly learn how to do. Like, 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 I I think, I think I'm going to keep my eye out of like the community college for CAD classes or something. I'm like, Matt, $700. $700. Let's, Let's go. go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I think we need to and, do that. And, uh, and we need to do that. But as far as, as far as just like getting it down. So what I'll, um, similar to Matt, I'll start with a thumbnail, okay. which is just like a basic drawing, yeah. no, not dimensioned or anything. It could be on like, a business card. Just right. like, uh, like whatever. And then that, 
I write down some basic dimensions of what I want to see also next to that thumbnail. And then like Matt says, I will lay it out on paper using like true layout techniques. Like, like I'll get a ruler. I'll get, I'll set my dimensions first. I'll set, I'll draw, I'll draw my center line. Um, I'll draw my midpoint, you know, where I want the, the handle to the blade. And then I'll design my knife around those lines. There you go. And I'll, I'll use French curves. I'll use a light box, yep. you know, try to transfer, you know, if I need to do multiple copies, yeah, because you always kind of tune it up. So the right. the final drawing that you see of ours is rarely the first drawing oh, that yeah, we did. 100%, so so yeah. it gets tuned up and it gets revved up several times. And that's where the, the Jim's talking about the light box. It passes light through the bottom sheet into the top sheet. So you're basically tracing your own work, but you're making the adjustments as opposed to just erasing constantly. Right. And so, and, and there is genuinely, at least for me, a little bit of zen in doing that. Yes. Like they're like, like just laying it out and going, this is the first version and watching it evolve over the course of five or six pieces of paper. Yeah. You know, if it takes that long, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's two, but right. But, but now yeah. there's also, and I do this sometimes too, or at least I did in my earlier days. And then I moved to this technique, but there's nothing wrong with this other than the fact that you don't have a recorded document of your progress is you can do this directly on the bar of steel also. Yeah, that's so true. Using yeah. the same French curve, only instead of using a pencil, uh, you're going to be using a carbide scribe yep. and die chem, which yep. is a, a metal like a spray paint meant for metal or it comes sometimes a liquid with a dauber yep, and it's, it's layout fluid. It's a machinist dye or yes. layout fluid yes. or, um, or uh, what's another name for it? Yeah, layout fluid. That's what it's layout, called on the layout bottle. Layout fluid yeah. or machinist dye. Yep. Okay. All right, cool. And yep. so you can do it directly on the bar. However, like I said, you lose that record of your design, which is the blueprint itself, which is something you can later hand off to a water jet technician and then they can mm -hmm. make it a production model. So I recommend the blueprint wholeheartedly. So now you have your dimensional drawing and there are a lot, you should look online and figure that out. You know, learn how to do that. I'm not going to give you the whole course on how to do a dimensional drawing here, but do a dimensional drawing and then take those dimensions and transfer them to the bar of steel, right? Um, which could be even your pattern or whatever, or, yep. or the prototype bar of steel. Uh, and I imagine that's how you do it also. That, that is how I do it. Um, there's, there's a couple of other methods. Let, let me, uh, let me talk about a more common method first before I go into mine is that some people will take that, take that drawing and lay it out on wood first, okay. like, like quarter inch or eighth inch plywood. You no, know, I've seen people do, I've never done that. Though, right. Yeah. I've never done it either, but I wanted to cover it because, yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. kind of a cool method. Yes. So, so what they'll do is they'll take it and they'll cut it out with a saw, rough it up and then take it to the grinder on a platen and then just give it a, like a once over for a smoothness. And then that is your pattern. That goes directly on the bar of steel. You take your sharpie and you just trace it. There you go. And you call it good. And that, that's, that's a method that works for, for some people. It's, it's not as precise as I like it. Right. I, I like it. I like it to be exceedingly clean. I, I know. I know you like it the same way. Exceedingly clean. In fact, yours are cleaner than mine. So, um, which which is great. The uh, so so the method that I use is I'll take that piece of paper and I'll make a copy of it first thing as soon as I'm done with it. Done with it, make it a copy. And then right. I never touch the original again. It goes into a file Pilot? called Knife Designs yes. 2017. And then I t and then I use the copy. The copy I'll cut out a rough like mask, if you will, around around the blade. And then I'll use packing tape after after I dye the steel. Like uh -huh. I'll dye the steel, make sure it's flat. I'll dye it, and then I'll use I'll make sure it's dry. And then I'll use then I'll lay it down, and I'll use packing tape to to kind of like adhere it to the surface of the blade. Okay. Then I will grab all of my French curves and straight edges again, back to the piece of steel with tape blade, and then retrace all my lines with oh, an exacto blade. Very nice. So 
So the X-Acto blade goes through the paper, through the tape, right into the steel, and leaves a nice scribed line. That's totally, uh, it's like totally that. clean. And it is, it's very precise because the kerf of the X-Acto is your margin of error, which is like two thousand. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you just gotta, you just gotta meet the middle of the line that you drew with your pencil on the paper that's copied. Yep. Make sure, and you just, just pay attention to how you have your lines drawn out. So, so you don't, you're not, you're not like hand tracing anything because I'm terrible at that. I'll, I, I'm like, I'm like. Wobbles and jumps. Uh, yeah, right, yeah. right. It's like it's like if somebody wanted me to make a Picasso and I came up with a Jackson Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's basically how I draw. So, so I need I need all those rigid lines and everything, and all the tools really help me. So I'll lay the tools out and I'll use the Exacto blade, and then when I'm done with it, I peel the tape off, tape, and then and then the tatters that are left of the piece of paper, and I have my scribed knife on the steel, ready to grind. I like it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I so another alternate method, kind of a hybrid of the two. That's great. I really like that. I'm yeah. gonna have to try that. You're gonna have to show me step by step. So not we can a problem. Yeah, we can do it. Um, is I would go to the dollar store and I would get the really cheap, flexible cutting boards. Oh, they like roll up. They're yeah. very flexible and they're super cheap. Okay. And so I would draw my knife, same thing as Jim. I would take a Xerox of it, and then I would use uh, 3M spray adhesive, mm-hmm. and I'd spray it on the cutting board material, and I would put my drawing right on it, and I would cut it out along the uh, the, the perimeter, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then I would lay that over it and scribe because it's more rigid than paper. Sure. Now, another thing to keep in mind when you're doing this is your whole locations, everything based off a, like every circle on your drawing is justified from the center. Yes. So it's yes. not, you know what I mean? It's not from the edge of the circle. It's the center of the circle. So what you want to do is always make sure that you mark the centers of your circles right, right, in with their a, placement. With, with an X or a cross. Yeah, it looks right. look like a cross yeah, through yeah, a scope. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that way you can measure and get everything right. And when we get to the next step, it'll also make more sense. Um, so now we have the pattern. We, we've given multiple methods to transfer the pattern to the bar of steel, right? Right, correct. correct. Okay, so now what we need to do is hole locations. Yeah. Uh, so what I do... From my standard method, because they're drawn on with crosshairs, my my typical A number one method is I will take an automatic center punch and I'll punch the center of those circles. Right. A spring-loaded punch. Absolutely. Ka-chunk. Yep. Ka-chunk. Ka-chunk. And then I go through with a rigid punch and then I smack it a couple more times just to widen it up. And that allows a drill bit to bite better, and it allows right. a drill bit to center. Right, but, but that—that's a good idea. I'm gonna take that idea. Yeah, because 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 I because <laughs> and it sounds so amateur to say, but I'll actually just take my little crosshairs and I'll just line up the drill bit and make sure that I'm good. And then and then I just I, I just understand that I'm gonna be angry if it walks. Right, and it will walk. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah. you know sometimes the bark is really <laughs> yeah. tough. Sometimes the material is really uh-huh. tough, even in an annealed state. And the drill bits just walk. So by automatic center punching and then exaggerating that punch mark with a rigid punch, a rigid center punch and a hammer. Um, then you have true drop mm-hmm. from your drill bit bites in exactly where you want it to be and boom, and it goes right through. So nice. now, now you have your hole, right? Right. Exactly where, exactly where you want it to be. I mean, um, and then all the, all those holes come immediately off your drawing. And what you're looking at is you're looking at like a 2d drawing on a bar of steel with dike and with holes through it. Yes. In, in the right spot. Yes. And then at that point you can start trimming your metal up. Yep. And right. I, how do you do it? Um, I, um, if there's any excess metal, um, I'll actually, and, and it's, and it's unheat treated. I'll actually just take it to our metal cutting bandsaw and just get as close as I can oh, there while, you go. while staying to the outside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any large sweeping curves or flats or corners, I will put on a flat platen and a tool rest and I will just very carefully bring it down. Um, at that point, if, if, uh, if it's already heat treated, obviously you can't take it to the bandsaw. Right. I will take it to an eight inch contact wheel with a, with a 60 grit belt, man. It's and hard. I'll just, 
I'll just start grinding. Watch your heat. There you go. Yeah, just, exactly. Watch just your start, heat. Just start watching your heat. I mean, where it's important. Obviously, you don't want any heat heat damage on your edge. On the handle, it's not so important. I know a lot of people are purists about trying to make sure that it's absolutely perfect all the way through. I'm, I'm like but, that. Yeah I, yeah. I just, I don't like to scorch anything. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's so easy because you're holding it with your bare hands. Right. So you're not yeah. going to want it to get to 400 degrees anyways. Otherwise, you're going to look like me with a blister on my <laughs> ring finger. I do have a blister. Yeah, Did you do that? I, I was soldering and I took the rod that Tom Crine it sent us and uh-huh. I had that little solder tool <laughs> and okay. it things yeah. at 400 degrees and right. I put it between my fingers as if it were like a big pen like not thinking <laughs> about it and I could smell my own burning flesh so yeah anyway don't burn your hands guys. So, so that was a good experience for the day <laughs> yeah that's, that's awesome um so let me just interrupt you real quick no, one, yeah. one thing I wanted to add and this is more of a design tip but it also aids in layout is when you're placing your holes for your fasteners on your scales um, this can get a little jumbled up as far as math goes. A trick that I use that I really like is I will take my calipers. Visually, I like my fasteners to be a little bit on the high side of center line. That way, when you contour the edge side of the handle scale where it kind of bends up, you know, it, uh, the soft lines kind of mm-hmm. come up, they can look low if you put it directly on the center line. So I go just, a, just an RCH. I can say that on here. Uh, just I just go a, a little a little bit above center line, and I'll figure out what that dimension is, and I'll set my calipers, my dial calipers, mm-hmm. to that dimension. And if you can picture the outboardmost jaw on a set of calipers, I'll actually rest that on the top edge of the knife blank, and I will scribe a line using the inboard jaw yeah. as a scribe, and it puts an arcing line on the handle, mm-hmm. and that's where I center my circles. That's cool. So yeah, yeah. now they're all even all the way around. Now, of course, check it for visual mm-hmm. because sometimes the design doesn't lend to that same consistent right. line being the line. Right, right, Especially right. for the lanyard hole. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the one that normally has to get monkeyed with a little bit. But I would scribe that line there, and now all of a sudden I have this straight, consistent arcing line, center my circles on there, and now they're the same height all the way back. Nice. So little Nice. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. Little things. Yeah, that's awesome. So anyways, <laughs> we're back to hogging out the profile. Yep. Hog- 60 grit wheel. Hogging out the profile, 60 grit wheel. Um, I'm talking about customs now. So, right. So I got to put my custom guy hat on. Because <laughs> um, most of the time I wear a production hat. Yes. So so I got to put my custom hat guy hat on for this. So so um, you get you get all of your long sweeping curves first on a on um, either either a wheel with a tool rest or a platen with a tool rest. And then any sort of radiuses that you have, you have to mate in with a small wheel attachment. Yes. At least that's how I do it. Yeah, or I mean, a file. If or, you guys or don't a file. Have, yeah, yeah, you can file. do a half round file. Most of those are half inch radius, which equates to a one inch diameter wheel. Right. So yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Um, so it's a half round file or or the small wheel attachment, and then just kind of pull pull all your lines together and come right to the scribe line. I tend to stay off maybe you know maybe te- maybe about ten thousands okay. until I'm totally sure of everything and where I know that everything's going to rest and then I'll go back and clean it up just very carefully. There you go. And then once I'm done. My my 2D model is a 2D representation of my blueprint, and I can take it back to the blueprint and lay it directly on the blueprint, and it's perfect. Most time, most of the time, <laughs> most of the time. Trust me, I know. Yeah, most of the time. Most time. Some, sometimes, sometimes you're like, huh, <laughs> and then you gotta go back and, <laughs> right. go back yeah, and fix it. I, I've done that so, so many times. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but yeah, it should lay directly on your blueprint. So my uh, profiling method is slightly different than Jim's, mm-hmm. but I think we accomplished the exact same goal. So I'll start off with a tool rest on a 10-inch contact wheel, 
and a 36 grip belt. Okay. A lightly yeah. used 36 grip belt. And I will get in there and I use a push stick to really hog out the material. So I omit the bandsaw altogether. So if you guys don't have a bandsaw, don't mm-hmm. be discouraged. Yeah. And just grind it. I personally, for me, just the way I do it, I find it to be faster without the bandsaw. Sure. But I know that, I don't know, a good portion of knife makers say the other thing. So they, yeah. they prefer the bandsaw. I, I, I can totally understand both yeah. ways because if it's a grinding, if it's like an A2 heat treated grinding blank, yeah, you can't do it with a bandsaw. So you just cut it out. Right. And I'm roughly done in about the same amount of time. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah. So yeah. that's, uh, you know, alternate method B. And after I'm done with the 36 grit wheel, uh, and I do not take it directly to the line, like Jim said, I'll, I'll sit proud, but probably more like, I don't know, 50 thousandths away from the line. Mm-hmm. And then I set up a platen, and on that platen with tool rest set perfectly at 90 degrees, I'll go in with a 60 grit belt and bring it to just about to the line. And then I walk through 110 which is where I come up and kind of kiss the line, mm-hmm. and then 220 finishes everything off nice and smooth. So for the radiuses, I built a little fixture that holds my blade uh, perpendicular to the small wheel attachment on the KMG. I actually cut up a piece of workout equipment and made like a tool rest that sits <laughs> uh, you know, perpendicular to the ground. Nice. And I put it on there, and I'll go in and do my finger choils. And I also do kind of the hogging in the contours of the handle on that small wheel. But then I go back to the tool rest, now slack belt. So I take the platen off, and I'm on slack belt. Mm. And I get in there, and that's how I can cut the recurves with no choppiness. Gotcha. Everything is pretty smooth. And I take that all the way up to a 220 J-Flex. So now what you're left with is your pattern, which we had said, you know, your Mm. blank, your knife blank. But all the edges are pretty immaculate. They're all very clean edges. And crisp. There's no round lines everything's everything's nice yes yeah and what that gives you is for the next step when you go to do your um your bevel uh center lines mm-hmm. and your plunge lines and all that oh you, yeah you hit that edge with either a sharpie marker or more die chem if you have that or whatever <laughs> yeah. and if you don't have a height gauge you, there's a lot of ways if, if you guys run into a problem with this let me know and, and we'll help you out um i use a height gauge on a surface plate a granite slab and i scribe my center lines that way and by having that bright 220 even finish all the way around i get really bold high contrast lines mm-hmm. yes um and if you don't have that stuff there are ways around it you can use calipers you can use a lathe cutter uh, here's an interesting thing. So mm-hmm. if you guys, I tell you what, a surface plate is one of the most, and that is a precision ground piece of granite that is accurate to like one ten thousandth over the yep. course of a foot. Yep. And we, it's a truly flat surface. Yeah, you can buy cheap ones that are accurate to a thousandth. So, so what we're doing, that's fine. Yes, but, absolutely. But yeah. yeah, go ahead. Um, so, but if you find yourself like, you know, they can be a hundred bucks, they can be 50 mm-hmm. bucks, they can be upwards of, you know, 400 bucks and beyond depending on the size. But uh, if you find yourself in need of a service plate, a flat piece of whatever, just to do precision work or QC checks, flatness checks, whatever, you can get a piece of tempered glass uh, or do what I recommend. And that is go to a granite house near you. They do countertops, they do kitchens and all that stuff. You go to them and ask for their sink cutouts. Because when they take a slab of granite and lay it on a kitchen top, Mm -hmm. they go in with a diamond hole saw and they cut four corners out of where the sink is supposed to go. And they Mm -hmm. use a diamond saw to cut out that blank for the sink. Oh, nice. So what you're left with is like a 14 by 10 inch piece of granite that they just throw away. Oh, so they'll Uh give them to you for free. You just uh, say, okay. hey, when you guys cut out for the sink, what do you do with those pieces? And if they don't have any there in the back, they'll probably bring you one back from the next job and they'll just give it to you for free. So you can save some money. Now, is it calibrated and diamond lapped? No. Is it flat? You better believe it's flat. I mean, it works <laughs> great. So, I mean, this will get uh, you by in a pinch and you'll have this indispensable tool. And that same surface plate is also great for tooling leather on. That's awesome. Multi-use, Perfect. right? And Perfect. it costs you nothing. So, that, that's, uh. I think... 
So now I think we're pretty much to a laid out blade, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, should we do the yeah. bevel layouts and stuff like that? Well, bevel layouts. Yeah, we should, we, we we might as well. I we're mean, here, like, right? yeah, yeah, we're the die cams out. The yeah. calipers are out. Right, it's Let's the same thing. I mean, yeah. um, so so you've already drawn your bevels. I'm assuming on your 3D, uh, not not 3D, but on your blueprint. Right. You know your original thing. So what I do, and and I get this from Matt. So me, so so Matt, feel free to jump in if I'm missing something. But um, yeah, Matt showed me this, and I'm just gonna do this forever because it's the best method possible. You take your measurement off your blueprint. You lock your calipers down. Your grind height, right? Your grind height. Okay. The grind height, and then you 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 you, and then you ride the edge of the, of your blank where 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 the knife edge is supposed to be. You ride that with that height. So on the on the on the on the far end of the caliper, the outboard jaw. the outboard jaw yeah. is 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 going to scribe a line in the middle. And then you just ride the edge to the tip, and then that's your line. And what that and does that is it, it yeah. transfers a consistent width line down the entire flat of the blank. So now your grind height is established. Yes. On both sides, and they're even. Yeah. So your flat apex should be in the exact same point on both sides. And now you have that. All I have to do is grind to that. We'll call that point A. Right. And then point B is the center line scribed mm -hmm. on the... The 220 bright finished edge on, on of the pattern. Looking at the edge of the pattern. That's right. Your, yep, that's your B. Yep. So you scribe mm -hmm. your center line there. Now the goal is to grind so that the bevel stops at both spots simultaneously. Right. It should stop at point A, which is your grind height, mm -hmm. and it should stop at the center of your edge, which is point B. And that's yeah. that's up to you guys. We can take you to water. We can't make <laughs> you drink. That You have to figure that part out. Right, right. And that's something that... that I've had to figure out recently. Matt's been doing it for years. Um, but as soon as I found that met this method for laying out bevels, it I'm never going to go back. It's just fantastic. It right. works out great. And and if you end up moving past your line a little bit because it's going to happen, just make sure that you're even on the other side. Take your calipers out. Take a measurement. Going, I need to go twenty thousands higher on this side. Yep. So just do that, and and just blend everything together. And practice makes perfect. You're going to screw up the first. You know. 16 or 17,000 knives you do. Right. <laughs> so, so, so just, you know, forgive yourself and just jump in and just start learning. Just keep going because I tell you what, you guys, uh, you know, I'm sure you have your own methods, but if you start implementing some of these tips that we give you, uh, you may not get it perfect every time, but you should see a dramatic improvement over where you were. So you, as long as you're continuously improving, then your product gets better and then you're more of an asset to the industry, which is what we want to see. We want to mm -hmm. see all of you guys rocking. You're not competing with us. No. You know, we're not competing with you. So we want everyone to rise together. So let's share this information freely Absolutely. and let's see everybody take it to the next level. And that, I believe, is our tech tip segment. Thank you guys so much. Next. Next. What's happening, gang? Matt Martin with Behind the Blade Podcast, reminding you that if you have an industry business that deals with cutlery, accessories, sharpening systems, whatever it is, please contact us at info at Behind the Blade Podcast, and we'd be glad to hook you up with all the information you need to be able to advertise through us and really reach your target-based customers. You know how difficult it is to advertise in the cutlery industry. We are your outlet. So please, again, that's info at Behind the Blade Podcast, and we'd be glad to help you out. All right, and we are back for our favorite segment. Your, we're gonna, what is it? We're gonna A or Q's. 
And it's not just going to be one Q or one A. Yeah. It's going to be several Qs. And a bunch of A's. And a bunch of yeah. A's. <laughs> uh, so we'll get this started. We're going to kind of skim through here. Ronnie Lyon of Lion Knives. Guys, go check him out. I think he's a pretty talented maker. He's a buddy of mine. And he's a good dude, too. Uh, worst knife making industry. Do you not listen to the podcast, Ronnie? Because I'm pretty sure we covered this about two episodes. <laughs> we, we did. We did. I think yeah. I covered my the 14 stitches in my knee. Yeah, I think yeah. I got my uh, borderline disembowelment in my yep. belly. Yeah, so, yep. yeah, so you're going to have to cut back to that one. Uh, let's see. What's the longest amount of time you spent putting an edge onto a blade? My record so far has been seven hours using a KOS, KOWS blade grinder attachment. Uh, oh, the Ken Onion Worksharp, I guess. Gotcha, yep. Boy, it really doesn't look like that, though. When it's no. In, uh, and, uh, a cow's blade yeah, grinder. Yeah. What's a cow's? Oh, Slowest oh. possible speed. Yeah. Seven hours. Seven, seven hours a long time. I hope it was sharp by the time it was done. I would say that there have been a couple knives where I set the angle wrong on my KME sharpener. And I just because... Don't ask me why I did it this way, but I did. <laughs> and then once I started getting into it, I'm like, well, I'm committed now. So I spent like two and a half, three hours on it, which to me is, I mean, I would probably just break the knife after six hours, let alone right. seven. You know right. what I mean? But two yeah. and a half, I was like, holy cow. But I ended up with a really sweet, totally reprofiled edge. Uh, <laughs> I bet it was razor perfectly sharp, yeah. too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jim, have you ever spent, how long did you spend on your razors, dude? Dude, I, uh, d- okay, so, so I don't know if we've covered this before, but when Matt and I met... <laughs> <laughs> it was it was at a little bit of a get together at Bark River and and uh there was a little bit of a seminar going on and we're we're you know I'm just I'm just profiling the edge of a razor that I had made or attempted to make on a 320 shaped in glass stone it's like six by one stone and you're supposed to use it to set your bevel and I didn't know anything about beveling edges on razors or anything I'm just working on it because I was just getting into it and I wanted to get something done while I was sitting there listening and and you know, hours go by, like two hours. And Matt comes up to me because we hadn't been like formally introduced or anything. And he goes, and he goes, how long have you been working on that? I keep on <laughs> looking over at you. And I, and I just kind of chuckle a little bit. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like a couple of hours. And then we put, and then I put it down at that point. Cause I realized what I was doing was stupid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> how much time are you going to spend on that razor, bud? <laughs> yeah, it was, so, it was pretty funny. It yeah, was a good time. For sure. So, <laughs> yeah. A couple hours, I would uh-huh. say, uh, what benefit this is from Kyle uh, Busick, Bus- Bucuck, Busick? I don't. Please, I don't please know. forgive us, Kyle, for butchering your Sorry, name. Sorry, Kyle. Um, I don't want. It, it could be Busick. It could be. Bu- it could be Buckuck. Buck. Buck. I don't know. Cubic. Um, but, but, uh, uh, let's but see. Send us a phonetic pronunciation, please. Make our life easy. Uh, uh, what benefit does a chisel, single bevel grind have over a V grind or dual bevel? Um. It. It would be purely in chisels woodworking woodworking specifically. and probably vegetable chopping or japanese knife cutlery yep if you're right-handed or left-handed they make different size they're not they, they make different grinds on different sizes of the knife depending if you're left-handed or right-handed which uh mm-hmm. chisel grinds are hand dominant hand specific so yes. uh one mistake that a very well-known company who i love their knives anyways is they uh they actually chisel grind the wrong side they do it so it has a hollywood bevel Okay. And so on the obverse side, you mm-hmm. know, if you're holding your right hand and you're looking at it, it's chisel ground on that side, but they're primarily right hand use knives. Okay. And so what you end up, because the, the liner lock and everything like that is yeah. set up for right-handed and the chisel grinds on the Hollywood side. So it looks good, uh-huh. but it doesn't have the same cutting e- efficacy as one that would be chisel ground on the other side. Right. On the reverse side. Cause that's where you lay that flat is against, it, you know, you're supposed so, to turn that around and use it as like a folding. No, nah, they do it or? for aesthetic and okay. it's kind of a swing and a miss in my opinion. Right. And so like I said, I don't need to drop names. You guys probably know who they are anyways 
And uh, yeah, so there is a benefit, like Jim said, in woodworking or in uh, sushi preparation, stuff like that. But uh, as far as it goes, a, a V-grind is going to be a more versatile blade. You can use opinion. it in either hand. You can use it in any yep. position. It'll be sharp and no matter what. I mean, not not to say that the chisel grinds don't perform well. They do for that task, but it's it's a little bit it's a little bit more specific than just a Western style centered edge. Right. So, yeah. All right. Another one from Kyle. Superman versus Batman. Who would really win? The Tick. That's who would really <laughs> win. <laughs> Spook! <laughs> Spook! Come on, little wood boy. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. um, uh, we all know that Superman would actually win, so they give Batman actual, like, excuses that he always wins. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Right? Right? Like, Batman always carries around kryptonite. Batman has, made, you know, planned it and went into battle with a kryptonite gun or something. God, you know? I'm so glad to have you on the crew, Jim, because I'm, I'm just blinking and nodding like, oh, yeah, that's uh-huh. what I thought, yep, too. I yep, have no mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right, go ahead. What was your absolute favorite knife build of all time? Personal prototype, prototype for production model. Okay, Jim, I'll let you answer this. I know mine, too. So far, mine's been the Marauder, which has been a prototype for production and it's a recent build yeah but you're just kind of now getting into custom building as like a a real thing right right it used to be just i had a concept on paper i draw it out and then we just kind of like run with it and then see how it did um we've got a 3d printer now so we can you know refine that process a little bit more but just and i swear to god for the production knives build the first knife yourself from scratch you know uh, invest yourself in it i mean you don't have a deeper connection with that model and the pride that you have behind it when you show it to people than if you were to just build it by scratch word yeah, or, absolutely. So, I have two. Okay. One of them's pretty recent, but it's one that I've always wanted to do and nail. Yeah. And I just recently did it, and that was our 3V Hologround SOG. Oh, And so, yeah. I just did the SOG that it, I, everything was just the way I wanted it to be on it. So, yeah. I was very happy with that one. Uh, but my absolute favorite of all time, I built for my birthday three years ago, and it was a CPM 3V Fairbane Sykes second pattern brass handle. Ah, yeah, so that nice. Nice, that, that yes. was my favorite. Yes, nice. I, yeah, yeah, you brought that over when we covered the Fairbane Sykes dagger. Yes. Yes, yes. that was yes. It was very cool. Very nice. Uh, Kyle, boy, when did you get the night off, bud? Uh, so, well, it's 11.48 a.m., so yeah, the morning. We love you, buddy. So, yeah. Uh, what is the hardest type of knife construction and grind? Daggers. Yeah, daggers because you have to keep the grinds even. Yep. I mean, and that's and, and then also not get the edge too thin, and also not get the tip too thin, and or too also, thick, or too thick. Too thick is even yeah. worse because it's so hard to sharpen when you do. You oh yeah, you end up with this nightmare. huge bevel yeah. in the front and this tiny bevel in the. And back. those have to match too. So then you have four right. matching knives. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. right. Four matching edges that have to match perfectly across the whole thing for you to feel good about it. Yep. Daggers so, and the rest is academic. Yep. Uh, paper, linen, canvas, or burlap micarta. All of them work. It's up to you. They mm-hmm. will. Li- they will give different topographies, right? So yeah, canvas. And burlap give the least dramatic, I say topography because it looks like a topo map. Yeah. So as you contour in, because the layers are so thick, you're not removing as many layers. So it's a little bit more subtle. And then linen and paper will give like this very dramatic topography. You'll yeah. see lots of layers and it looks really good. It, it, uh, pa- paper can be a little bit tricky because um, I've I've seen some paper micarta, like, like black paper micarta, look oh. jet black homogenous like, like you're right no matter what you do to it it's just totally jet black some but white all, papers like that too yep. yeah bone. Uh, i think with like a we call it white bone vintage yep my carta that is totally just like that one color all the way through but there but like antique ivory which is now <laughs> illegal is yeah. totally it, it, you can, it's totally layered it the whole steps, way down yeah. it's totally cool so you just have to know what you're getting into really um um i'm not quite sure if you mean like a performance between all of them, um, or, or preference between all of them, I prefer canvas micarta between all of them because one, it's cheap. Two, it's just as strong as the rest of them. Yeah. And and it's probably the easiest to work with out of all of them. 
Yeah, I, so. and I don't have. Yeah, I have zero preference. I think it's all up to the knife. I like on a good field knife. I like an olive drab canvas on mm-hmm. uh, in town dressier knife. I like a linen micarta. There's no performance benefit. It's just a stylistic thing. Yeah, and since they're all of similar strength, paper's probably not the strongest. I don't know out of that group. I've had it D lamb. Have you? Okay, me. yeah, because yeah, it heats I've, up yeah. real easy yep. and it burns. Mm-hmm. You know, but it does it look does. nice. It makes a good accent. I've used it for accents. Before. Right, right. I've never had linen canvas or burlap micarta D lamb on me, but I've had paper micarta D lamb. Yeah. So I'll see worst knife you ever made. I know that's a Ooh. tough one. Probably my first one. I was going to say, yeah, literally yeah. What I was just going to say my first knife. Yeah. No, you can't see it. <laughs> what, what was your first knife? The first knife I ever made or first knife I ever got? Cause... First knife I ever made. The first knife I ever made was the worst knife I ever made. There you go. Yeah. By, by far, by far. I had, I had to have someone else grind it for me. Um, and the handle was, the handle was very, very bad. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of scratches still in it, and I thought I did such a good job in it, and then I took one look at anything else. Yeah. And oh. I'm like, ah, I'm going to keep this to remind myself of where I've been. Yeah, so. and I also think, you know, it's an interesting point there, too, is no matter where you're at, it's good to compare yourself with people who exceed your level of talent. Yes, So 100%. I and, and as you get better, I mean, let's be honest, as you get better, that pool becomes a little bit smaller, and then maybe it even delves into a style that you don't necessarily appreciate on your own work, but you can take certain things like, wow, look at their edge geometry, or wow, look at their blade finish, or wow, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So try to constantly be, don't waste your time. I'm going to go on a rant. I'm sorry. Don't (laughs) waste your time looking down on other makers and being like, I'm better at that than them. I'm better at that than them. What you need to do is you need to invest your time into looking at makers who far exceed your current ability because that's what's going to drive you to become a better maker. Right. Yeah, you, you're, you're like, oh, we call it Hogwarts. Uh, you know, <laughs> in, with, in Harry Potter, which I only saw the first one, you know, he was kind of whiz-bang, Harry was, until he goes to the school and, like, these kids are, like, doing crazy stuff, right? Right, yeah. And he was like, oh, my God, I've got so far to go. So going to Blade, Jen and I, when we go to Blade, we call it Hogwarts for that same reason is you get there, you're confident, you're pumped, you, you're following, you know, don't read your own media also, by the way, guys. That's very dangerous, a very toxic cocktail to read your own following on Facebook. You can be gracious. You can show gratitude. As soon as you start drinking your own Kool-Aid, you are destined for terrible things. Let me please reiterate that. If you read your own press too much, you start believing it and you start thinking that you've reached it. And when you think you've reached it, your progression has completely arrested. So we would go to Blade, you know, hopped up on our own media, feeling pretty good. Now we're aware of this too, because this has Mm -hmm. always been a culture in our shop, but you're feeling strong, you're feeling confident and you get there and then somebody just pulls out like some mind blowing stuff and you're just (laughs) like, oh, I'm just going to go cry and don't look at any of my knives. I'm going to throw a tablecloth over everything. (laughs) It's like, I'm just going to give up. I'm going to go home. Bye. So so don't, 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 you know, do the junk food thing of comparing yourself to makers who either don't have the same aptitude or experience level uh, and also don't listen to your fans, listen to your fans, but don't believe don't take what they have to say as the gospel in that you are the greatest ever because what will happen is you'll think you're the greatest ever and you'll stop progressing. Right, so right. You, you think that you've apexed. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then, and then, you're and not then you have. Pick, right. And then <laughs> you have. fulfilling yeah. prophecy. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and then and that's a that's in a bad way. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't care if you sell 8 million knives a minute. Don't ever get to that point. I am never at the top of my game. Never. Right. Which yeah, is, which is a healthy climbing. outlook. Yeah. It is yeah. So, it's such a healthy outlook, too. I mean, like, so so absolutely. Yeah, same for me. So there. Ran, so, oh, I don't even remember what the question was. Um, <laughs> Adam Jerome, wonderful job on the podcast, fellas. I listened to it with my four-year-old daughter, Naomi, and she loves it. Woo, hi, Naomi. Hi, Naomi. If you could pick an edge weapon from a fantasy science fiction world to recreate with quality materials, 
which would you pick and why? I read Tolkien novels and would love to see some of the daggers mentioned recreated with quality usable materials. Jim, I defer to you on this. I know this is in your wheelhouse. <laughs> what fantasy weapon would you make? Conan sword. The Atlantean sword. Duh, of course. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd leather wrap the handle and everything, um, and I'd want two of them. I'd want the shattered one that, that, that Conan uses to cut Thulsa Doom's head off. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd want the full-size one with a wolf skin sheath that goes on my back. Something tells me, guys, that he had this answer already in the back of his head and didn't need to be prompted no, with this no, question. No, I hadn't actually <laughs> read this question. It's just instinct. Man. Yeah, just already there. <laughs> So that's that's totally that's totally what I would want, um, and I'm I would I would make it out of uh, CPM three V. Yeah, most likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Great. The cross guard out of titanium. No, probably not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but definitely three V. Matt so. Westendorf. This is a good question, Matt. Why do you think the trailing point has fallen out of favor for profiles such as drop points? Lack of appreciation or understanding of what a trailing point offers? Lack of skills? Thanks and keep up the awesome job. Really enjoy listening to you guys. So, all right. What we have is we have a trend system in the knife community. And this is kind of a two-part answer. So, yes, it fell out of favor because of the drop point hunter. And that is really what changed it. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people still making trailing points. We make a trailing point mm-hmm. skinner, too. Yep, we do, too. The other mm-hmm. side of this, though is manufacture. So unless you're forging a blade, then a trailing point consumes a phenomenal amount of bar stock, whereas you are pretty Mm -hmm. much guaranteed a sale on a dropped hunter or a bullnose hunter or something like that, and you can get that out of a piece of inch and a half. To do a trailing point, you need two inches plus or minus to be able to get the handle drop and the tip to come up. Otherwise, you can kind of doctor it to look like it, but it won't have like that buck kalinga, that big scimitar, you know, kind of tip. That's true. So it's from a manufacturing standpoint, they're more difficult. And since the Mm -hmm. market embraces the drop point or the bullnose, then then why bother? Now, like I said, I like them. We still make them. But there's your reason. Yeah, and it's 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 totally true because a trailing point, like like look at it from a production perspective, right? We water jet all of our blanks. When you take the trailing point blade and you nest it in the sheet, you get less yes. out of the sheet because of that upsweep than you do out of a drop point hunter, as Matt was saying about, which means that your yield is less out of the same cost of the sheet, which means that the price is higher. Right. So you're pricing it outside of the range already of the drop point hunter for one. Two, I also think that um, looks have something to do with it too. People prefer the look of a drop point. Oh, I love and, the trailing point. And now though. that oh, my oh God. no, I do too. Yeah. But but now that we're in the age of age of technology and the information superhighway and the internet, you we're, we're we're less about selling knives and more about selling the look of the knife. Right, right. And I just don't think that the trailing point has the look of a modern consumer. Not to the or, contemporary market. Not and to the so, contemporary market. Yeah, right. it's and, much and that's way. just part of the the fad and change and trends. Right. The same way that uh, serrated tantos fell out of favor. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. So that was a big thing for a number mm-hmm. of years. And so I think some purists still really like the trailing point. And yes, there is a skill factor that goes along with that. That is, uh, you know, again. <sighs> Just because you can doesn't mean you have to. Mm-hmm. You know what I right. mean? And yeah. taking that philosophy, then I think it is, you know, the pendulum is swinging the other way and people are going to prefer a dropped hunter. And, and that's that. And as a custom maker, you know, Jim said less yield out of a plate, but as a custom maker, that means a lot of work to get the same three to $500 knife or two to $500 knife out of a bigger piece of bar stock. Yeah, you have to buy and wider so, bar stock yep. to get the same amount of blades out of something you could have got out of a cheaper, thinner piece of bar stock. Yep. So So, great question, Matt. I hope we were able to answer it with some uh, amount of accuracy, a modicum of accuracy. Right. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Favorite blade style and also blade thickness. Davy Adams, this is a really subjective question. It also has mm-hmm. a lot to do with what you do with it. But, I mean, um, if blade thickness, in my opinion, I, I make most of my knives out of 3 because I like that balance between mm-hmm. ability to cut and uh, stoutness. So yep. I, I think quarter inch is too thick, in my opinion, unless it's a big big chopper like a Randall that's got some really tight grinds on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, that's... What about you? You're probably um, 530 seconds. 530 seconds, 316. Yeah. So I'm 30 thousandths off from you. Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> there you go. So, so um, no, I, I don't know. That's that's probably my favorite blade thickness. That's our, uh, talking about Bark River for a second, that's our that's our gunny model. That is our, I think the Springbok was 156. Um, the Bravo 1 LT is 156. Yeah. All of those are super comfortable, very usable, very durable utility knives at 330 seconds on the spine. Yep. So... Yeah. Another one from Davey Adams, Toothy Edge or Mirror? Uh, it depends uh, on who you're appealing to. So I prefer mm-hmm. Toothy Edge. I tell you what, you take a, like a, I don't want to say a K bar because I have never owned a K bar specifically, but I can take a Camillus or Ontario Navy Mark II stock, mm-hmm. a USMC fighting knife. You take one of those out of the box. It's like the toothiest edge ever. Go take that to some one inch rope. Now, I don't mean like dramatic mm-hmm. blade sports challenge. I mean, yeah. saw that rope, like just cut it and it'll cut like nobody's business. And so toothy edge for a field knife is fantastic to me. Now, if you are embellishing a high end EDC folder or something like that, and you want to either add some perceived value to it or demonstrate your sharpening skills in whatever system you're using, then, then mirror edge. So I don't have like a, uh, oh, mirror edges are dumb. You know, I, I think they appeal to a certain group of people. And I feel like it's a way for other people to contribute to the knife industry by, you know, uh, showing their skill. And, uh, you know, the KME sharpener, you could put a mirror edge. I mean, yeah. to me, it takes a long yeah. time. And it's not, I don't care about it that much. I did it on my Sebenza on my KME just to mm-hmm. see if I could. Uh, I didn't, didn't show it off or anything like that. But, you know, so that's where I sit is right. a toothy edge for a field knife <clears throat> mirror if you are embellishing the knife. I, I I pretty much agree. I like I like I like refined toothy edges. Yep. So so I think the best possible edge that you can put on a knife as far as grit patterns go would probably be about anywhere in between two to three thousand. Mm. If you put an edge on your knife at two to three thousand, there's going to be an ever so slight shine to it. But it'll still shave hair, and it'll produce. Um, you're you're not going too fine, right. so that the edge actually breaks down, and you're not too coarse, so that the edge breaks down, and you and you still have a refinement. So I like that middle. I like that middle range for a work knife. Um, if if you're if it's a razor, because because you know razor craze, right? If it's a razor, that edge should be a mirror. I should be able to reflect newspaper in it and read the newspaper off the mirror edge. Gotcha. But that's a much different application. That's I a mean, performance necessity. Right. That yeah. yeah, you need that in a good razor. So, but yeah, right in between for me, um, on knives and then mirror edge on razors. On razors. Alright, another one from Davey Adams. Favorite blade finishes, hand rub, belt, acid, stonewash, mirrors, blasted. Cool. Uh, Dude, uh, I... I don't have a preference in all those. I like combinations. I like yes, contrasting I like, combinations. I like contrasting combinations. I, I like the hand rub blades with the acid stone wash flats. Yeah. I like the hand rub flats and the acid stone wash blades. Yeah. I mean, I I just um I, I guess I guess what I like that my best my the my favorite one is where you have two different competing finishes on the blade. That and, contrast makes everything pop. And I don't care if one of them is like a satin glow and the other one is hand rubbed. Or or one sandblasted and tumbled, and the other ones and the other ones Scotch Bright. It doesn't it doesn't matter to me. I just like I just like the two tone stuff. Yeah, you know. So I mean, I just think it looks the absolute best. Yeah, I agree, and so, it makes the grinds right. really pop. Uh, for me, honestly, I you know what you guys very 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 rarely hear me talk about vehement knives on here, um, but I will say that Tiger Lips. 
Oh man, Tiger that is Lips so cool. Is my favorite. Yeah. That was one that we were chasing for years, and finally we developed some specialized tools to be able to do it. And that is our. Uh, for you guys that don't know, we started off with a model called the Behemoth many years ago, and on there we did what we called Apocalypse Wash, and mm-hmm. it looked cool. It looked already beat up by the time you got it, but it was, uh, you know, a little artfully done. It was definitely Kiku Matsuda inspired, but it it was neat. Well, we and then we did the tiger striping like you would see on like a Strider or something like mm-hmm. that, and then I developed this uh, special tool that I can use to hand apply, uh, like it looks like a Vietnam era tiger stripe, right. but it's done in the Apocalypse wash method so we called it tiger lips because we couldn't think of anything cool and so but uh to me that is my absolute favorite blade finish um and you can go to like the vehement syndicate or something like that if you want to see pictures of it or vehement knives on facebook but that is my favorite finish and that like i said i hate plugging myself on the podcast i try to keep it pretty impartial but you asked i'm telling you uh, what's your funniest reason someone sent in their knife for warranty? Jim, I bet you have something for this. Uh, well, I had the I had the elevator shaft one where a guy just wanted to see if the warranty was true. So he threw it down an elevator shaft, which the knife, t- the knife tip broke off because dropping 30 stories does that to a knife. Jesus. And we sent it in and covered the warranty. Um, there was also, I think, I think the strangest one that I've had so far um, actually happened a couple of days ago. So I get this call. Um, and I, and I'm asked to go back to the warranty section and, uh, and to talk to this one guy and I'm briefed a little bit beforehand before I pick the phone up. So I, so, so I'm told that the guy was using the knife on twigs and it chipped. So I went, huh, Hmm. atypical. Okay. Um, so I talked to him and it turns out that was just something that he said to get attention so he could talk to like that person's supervisor. Apparently that's a, that's something that people do. What? Yeah, and he told me about this. He's like, oh, no, I just said that just to, just to get a hold of a supervisor. Here's what happened. And and he told me that he accidentally dropped the knife off of his porch, which which was like a six-foot-up deck. Like down a raised to, deck. Like, like yeah. a raised deck. And the knife landed edge-first onto rocks, and it chipped out. Oh. And he goes, and he goes you know what? I just don't think that, that it should have chipped out. You just dropped it because you, six feet is where your feet are at. So let's yeah. add another 36 inches minimum because that's right. where your hands are at. Right. And then let's yeah. add gravity and terminal velocity. Right. So, you know, and then and throw it at a pile of rocks. I don't think it should have chipped. I don't think you should own a knife. Like, <laughs> what do you think about so that? You, yeah. so you took one thing and threw it at a harder thing. Right. And then you're surprised when the softer thing deformed somehow. And then you lied about it. And then you lied about it. Yeah. Nah. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just didn't have much love for that situation. I mean, we covered the knife, of course. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, come on. So, uh, pros and cons of the newish lava flow micarta sturdiness of the newish burlap versus uh, burlaps versus micarta. Now, Jim, I know you guys do like freeze tests and all that stuff, so I'll, mm-hmm. I'll let you answer this one. Um, so, that. how we do a freeze test is is just, I mean, just 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 hearing me say the word freeze test, you guys probably already worked out exactly how we do the method. We take the block, we put it in the freezer, leave it overnight, come in the next morning, bounce it off the ground as hard as we can on concrete, see what happens. <laughs> is basically what we do for the freeze test. The um all of the all, all of the all the stuff that Matt said and, and Roland Riviera's question passed all of that. So so the lava flow micarta passed it. The the new the new shade tree burlaps uh, from shade tree custom composites passed. Um and micarta's of course all passed that. So so, so um pro, pros and cons of it. Um the con the only con that I can see of the newest lava flow micarta's is that when when it's made it's not book matched. 
It'd be mm. really nice if the flows flowed across the spine. Or so least... you'll you'll have a different looking handle from side to side. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, they're different side to side. Is really the only con, but that's aesthetic. As far as strength and durability, I've not had any real problems with it. Yeah. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Shane Helena, what's your guys' take on sp- oh, this is this is a good one. Uh, boy. Oh. Yeah. What's your guys' take on Spiderco knives made in Taiwan Taichung factory? I find it hard to swallow some of those prices for something coming out of a part of the world that is gen- that is stereotypically producing junk. Cheers, boys. So get a load of this. So Taiwan is recognized by most of the world as being a separate country from China as opposed to the U.S. We still recognize them as part of China, which is pretty, it's pretty interesting. That. That's yeah. geopolitics, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to get into that. However. The factories in Taichung, Shane, I am not even kidding you. The finest spider codes you're ever going to lay your hands on come out of Taichung. They're it's, like Seki plus. Yeah, it's totally true. It's unbe- it, yeah. I mean, they are full custom fit and finish. They're unbelievable. Yeah. They, they are Seki Japan plus. Yeah. And I, it was a tough pill for me to swallow. But after seeing like the Velotins and the uh, the Phoenix was another model, the stuff that comes out of Taichung, that's where Spyderco gets their highest end knives from, if you can believe that. Yeah, so true. it is uh. weird, and the contrast is there, and we always associate Taiwan with not being that great. But the fact of the matter is, Taiwan, Taichung specifically, is superior to most other production knife factories on the planet, and we can't hold their geography against their talent. Yeah, it's true. Oh, <clears throat> uh, where is the I am behind the blade t-shirts, hat, and swag? We're working on it. Or I, I tell you what, here's what's going on, Roland. Um, we are right now gunning for, we have our targets fixed on getting a new computer, which mm-hmm. through the funding of our sponsors, we're very close. So if you guys feel like donating, feel free. Because with that new computer system, we are going to be able to do YouTube videos and more live feed YouTube channel type stuff. Right. So right now we're building the recording studio and we're gunning for that new computer, which is not cheap. And we need the, uh, what do you call support systems to go yep. with it. Absolutely. And then once we get that, then you guys will be able to look at our ugly mugs, but at least we'll be able to show you guys the knives and stuff that we're talking about as we're talking about them. And then we'll have a disposable income for the hats and swag. So, um, they'll be coming pretty soon. This is all very short term, so I don't want you to make it sound like, oh, in a couple <laughs> years, we're talking no. in a couple months. Yep. So mm-hmm. so sit tight. Uh, RJ Halliday, what's up, buddy? Who's your favorite hand forge maker, and what's your favorite blade design they make? I was also wondering if you guys could do a history segment on the Puko. Thanks, guys. Love the show, and keep up the awesome work. So that's that's in, that's in the vein of what we were talking about earlier. Matt and I were talking about the history segments earlier, and we were thinking about transitioning to either specific patterns or, or commonly... Or commonly um, associated knives the people people typically know about the puko is absolutely right in there for for a workhorse knife that's timeless yeah so i mean yeah that, that would be easy to do well here's be easy to do and and who's your favorite favorite of anything uh, my daughter asked me i was like what's your favorite soup i'm like i don't know whichever one i'm in the mood for right now and so, <laughs> so but yeah good 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 answer but yeah, go ahead yeah, yeah so here we go you want to talk about pukos you want to talk about hand forge look up jesse hemphill because this guy is a friggin' mutant mm-hmm. and he was he was famous in the 80s he's a good friend of ours and he kind of went on hiatus for a number of years and then he came back and he has found his groove and is now making some ridiculously beautiful Damascus hand-forged Pucos. And I th- think he's going to take the world by storm. I think he's also got a production version in the works. I'm not positive on that. So mm-hmm. check out Jesse Hemphill. That's H-E-M-P-I-L-L. And if you want to see a hand-forged Puko to tie your entire question together, talk to that man and he'll hook you up. Absolutely. Um, as far as my favorite hand-forged maker right now, so that's a, that's a flavor of the week thing for me, right? So right. I discover new people. It's a guy I discovered on YouTube. I showed Matt the video earlier. Oh, yes. Of how this guy yes. of how this guy works. He is 
He's a young British kid. He's got to be in his mid twenties. Yeah, and and he produces some phenomenal stuff. It's he's on YouTube. His name is Alex Steele, S T E E L E, and he's 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 in he's in he's in Britain. His camera game and then the content that he produces is as on point as the knives that he makes. He makes knives, he makes axes, but primarily... Dutch quality, pr- I mean, oh, it's yeah. great. He, he does really, really nice stuff, and then he makes his own steel and his own Damascus in his shop, like, like by himself. He's and super talented, super entertaining. It, it genuinely is. I, so so that's probably my favorite, you know, maker, forge, forge artist right now, as as you will, as you will. Actually, I already, I told Jesse about him, too, a couple nice. weeks ago. Nice, So... So uh, definitely check out Jesse Hemphill and also check out Alex Steele on YouTube. You will not be able to tear your eyes away. No, yeah, like, it's, what, it's what, a good entertaining yeah. video and it's easy mm-hmm. to get into and you get to see a lot of behind the scenes. So it was pretty awesome. Now there are a lot of bladesmiths out there, but you'll have to just kind of troll the internet and find the right person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I threw Jesse in there because of the Puko comment. I was like, <laughs> oh, perfect. He's been yeah. making Pukos. It's great. Uh, so Let's see. William Cassidy. I'm a new maker, just making knives for a hobby at present. Uh, it takes me about 12 hours to make a knife, which is a respectable amount of time, by the way, sure. William, for yeah. a quality knife as a hobbyist. 12 hours is totally mm-hmm. respectable. Uh, I tend to make them in threes. Cool. Uh, do and tips on how to lean up process to be more economical with my time i work after work family a couple hours a night a good while to finish just one at present so that do you have any tips that that's a great actually actually what it does is it has it 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 it, man i cannot speak today it gives me a lot of hope for where you're going because you're already you're already trying to refine what you're doing to spend less time doing it that and that that is phenomenal i mean you're not just like well it just takes me 12 hours to do it you're like no i need time is money I need to save time. What can I do faster in a better way? Right. How to make a better knife faster. And And that is, I tell you what, William, that is the white whale for all of us. Whether you're custom, whether you're production, it's how to make a better knife faster. And you can't take one of those away. You can't just make a faster knife. And in your case, you don't want to spend more time. So you can't just necessarily make a better knife with an indefinite amount of time behind it. Right. So, um. Tech tips. What was the the question? Are there any tips? Oh, and they, so yeah. the the best thing I can offer is there's a million and one tips, but you'd either have to shadow somebody or apprentice at their shop, or you can listen to Behind the Blade podcast and follow the tech tip segment, <laughs> because in each one of those, we try to give a little bit of a professional insight. And as professionals, we really try to use our time as efficiently as possible. Doesn't mean that we have it perfect, but it does mean that when you can get a little information from pros, then you can be like, oh, that's how they do that. That So instead of using a hand file, they use their belt grinder in that way right. or whatever. And right, that, exactly. That's where you get the time saving. So yeah, mm-hmm. stay tuned and keep up with the tech tip segment and we'll try to keep you guys... Oh no, I lost the question. We'll try yeah. to keep you guys uh, full of... Uh, yeah, exactly. Yep. There you mm-hmm. go. Appraised. Very cool. All right. Um, do you have the question? I can read the last one. Go ahead. Okay. Does Vehement Knives LLC or Barkover Knives have any plans on a hollow-handled knife or... Or a removable handle with a hidden slab like the Randall 17 Astro. Huh. So, Bark River does not. Um, vehement th- does. But Vehement does. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. So, I think that if Bark River were to produce something like that, it would actually be for Blackjack Knives. Oh, yeah. Which is owned which is owned by Blue Ridge Knives in Marion, Virginia. Right. Um, that would follow perfectly in with them. I mean, we did just get a CNC lathe, so yep. it wouldn't be too difficult for us to actually make those barrels. I mean, we could probably even thread them into the, into the guard somehow. 
Yeah, yeah, and I've too. got the engineering so, specs and all that stuff figured out. So I mean, cool. I'd be glad share and share alike, as we were saying earlier. But yeah, Absolutely. we're we're eventually yeah. going to do some hollow handles. Um, in the meantime, until we get off our butts to do hollow handles, you guys need to check out Robert Parrish. I don't even know if he's still alive, to be quite honest with you, but uh, I can definitely learn about him. Though. Yeah, Robert yeah. Parrish. He does some of the finest hollow handle knives. Uh, of course, Newt Martin of the Martin Knives Collective. Check him out. Uh, you know, we've talked about Newt before. He is battling leukemia at this time, but that has nothing to do with this man's amazing level of talent when it comes to putting together. And his knives are very Robert Parrish. Like, they're well-executed, excellent field knives. I think Boker ended up doing a uh, a branded, Martin-branded really? survival cool. knife. And it is I would love to have one of those. And then also check out, obviously, Chris Reeve. Mm -hmm. So, I yeah. mean, these are the heavy hitters next to Randall and, of course, Jimmy Lyle. But, uh, yeah, eventually we'll do it. I have actually done a Randall 17 Astro in the past. Very fun knife. I did it out of D2. It was kind of a neat thing when I did it. But, yeah, so that's about that. Now, I know we have some email message questions, but, Jim, I do believe that is a podcast. That is a today. podcast. Thank you, everybody, for submitting your questions. Um, we will be finding any, um, we, we will be finding more questions and making sure that we include them in the next episode. But I think we're done for today. So, Matt, congratulations. Good episode, sir. And we will see you guys next week. Thank you. This has been Behind the Blade Podcast, episode 18. My name is Jim Stewart, signing off for Matt Martin. Don't forget to like, share, comment, and subscribe. And share this everywhere that you could possibly share it on social media. You can definitely check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash behindthebladepodcast. Check out our website, www.behindthebladepodcast.com. Hey, on our website is a little donate button in the bottom corner. Feel free to hit that if you uh, feel that you could add some value to us. We're on that march for the new computer and uh, for the recording studio. So give us a hand and we will see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>